If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn this morning to Genesis chapter 37. If you're going to use a pew Bible, that'll be, uh, I think, page 27 or 28, somewhere around there. Marion has this back on his back on his stand. I'm looking at this. It says small batch. <laughs> Very small batch. Apple juice. All right. As you're turning, I want to. Uh, I didn't do this in the announcements because I kind of want. I want to hopefully get your attention, and that is um, we've just started home fellowship groups, and this is a great time to jump in. Um, there's some new groups that are starting up, and um, if you haven't been a part of one, um, it's a great way to meet people in the church. Um, you may have heard it said, you know, uh, um, rows are not as good as circles, and when someone says that, what they're trying to say is you really need to be in a circle um, a group where you're getting to know people and exchanging ideas and learning about them. Because that's the only place you're really going to probably find that aha moment where you're going to sit across from someone and you're going you're gonna to hear them talk about something, an aspect of their life or something they're going through, and you're going to go, oh, wow, you too? And it's that you too moment, right, that really connects you with people and, and uh, in the church and helps you get to know other folks. Because guess what? There are lots of U2 moments that can happen um, amongst the folks that are here, and I hope that you'll take advantage of those. So uh, if you don't know what those fellowship groups are, let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll get them to you. They should be um, they're listed in your, your, um, your bulletin. You can see each week this week at LOPC, and um, we can certainly get you a list of those. Email us, call us, um, flag us down in the parking lot, whatever. And if you're interested in starting a fellowship group, perhaps you're, you've been thinking about this, you want to have some folks in your home and you want to start a group, let us know. We'll, uh, we'll help facilitate that for you. So this morning we are starting the section, the last section of the book of Genesis. And um, we're going to be, be uh, beginning um, the story of Joseph and his brothers this morning. And... Um, I, I've tried as we've kind of hit these different segments to give you um, some materials. Some of you like to go and you like to read and kind of read deeper and really think about what's going on. So if you're interested, here are a couple of uh, here are a couple of items. A great little commentary for the entire book of um, of Genesis is um, the uh, actually there's one that I'm going to highlight, which really hits on the segment of uh, Joseph is F. B. Meyer's book. I'll just give you their their titles. You'll if you go and you punch them in Amazon or whatever. F B, um, as in boy Meyer, and then his book on Joseph. Um, Ian Duguid's commentary on Joseph is really good. Um, the one on Jacob and Esau is great. He also has one on Abraham. And then Vody Bachman's book on Joseph I'm finding to be very helpful. If you're interested in a in just kind of a more devotional read then um, you may want to look at a little book on Joseph by, um, boy, there it is, 48 this year, 
apologize. I'll get that one to you because it's gone. Um, you remember the name? Yeah, I showed it to you. I shared it with you. Gave it to you. He's no help. Gosh, that is going to bug me this whole sermon. Okay, so those are those are some materials um, that I'm using. You will enjoy them as well if you want to get a hold of them. And um, and so this morning, Genesis chapter 37, we're going to read the first 11 verses. So let's do that. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilnah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hated him all the more because of his dream that he had said. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word. We want to ask that our meditations upon it and the words of my lips concerning it will be acceptable in your sight. For your glory and for our good. Amen. So the challenge this morning for a lot of you is going to be to think about the story of Joseph's quote, coat of many colors and and to really get into it in a in perhaps a different way so that you can hear it I, i'll tell you i had a hard time earlier this week hearing the passage because i have a lot of stories in my head about this i i have the story in general in my head and i have things that have people have told me all along about joseph in my head and so I had to work to kind of get outside of all of that and to get a fresh set of eyes to look at the story. And one of the things that you've always heard about is this coat of many colors. Now, I don't want to tell you that what you've heard your entire life from childhood is wrong. But, well, 
It probably is. The truth is, we don't really know what this coat is. And the reason is we don't know exactly how to translate the word that is there for this coat of many colors or whatever it is. Um, The NIV translates it an ornate coat, an ornate robe. That's probably better. But the chance that it was a coat of many colors are probably slim to none. And here's why. The best rendering of this word is a, in other places that it's used, it's used of a tunic or a coat that extends to the extremities. And so what that kind of highlights is that this was probably some sort of a regal robe. And a regal robe would have been different than just a robe that you went out and you worked in every day or a coat, a tunic that would have been shorter and that you would have gone and done your day's activities in. So, it's it's more ornate. It would have been something that would have been used for special occasions. Um, if you were royalty, then this would have been what you wore when you were in the courts and that sort of thing. But it clearly was not the sort of a garment that a young 17-year-old would be utilizing regularly were he the 11th son in a family. Are you tracking with me? So his dad has given him, you know, it's like it's like having a 15-year-old and you've given him an Armani suit. Are you with me? And he said, okay, you know, ah, oh, yes, that fab, fabulous. It looks amazing on you, son. Now go play with your friends out in the street. Go out to the hills and tend to the sheep in your new Armani are you with me? That's essentially what's going on here. So what is what has Jacob done for his son? Well, he's he's set him up. He he's giving him a really fine garment. But that garment has absolutely nothing in common with who Joseph is as a young 17-year-old. What he should be doing if the family dynamic was normal is he's going to be, you know, hauling uh, buckets of manure from the from the barn and he's going to be shoveling out. I mean he's going to he should have all of the the jobs that none of the other brothers want at this point in his life and yet what his father has done is he's elevated his status by giving him this amazing coat daddy's given him a fine coat to wear while the other brothers are out tending sheep and doing manual labor Joseph, apparently, is at the house watching Auburn beat LSU in the last second of the game. Sorry, Jeffrey. You get the point. So, this is the coat. That begins to set the stage, right? This meaningful coat that Jacob has given Joseph sets the stage for what is happening in this family. So this morning I want you to see this meaningful coat, how it sets the stage. It gives at least three points that I want you to see in the passage and then three takeaways. Three points, three takeaways. The three points are, what you're going to see here is you're going to see a bad report, a bad parent, and a bad feeling. All right, I stole these, just FYI. 
But what these three do is help to hold this passage together, okay? And what you, what you really want to take away is that the family dynamic here is poor. Now, what we're going to do is take that and put it in context as we get to the end. But I want us to kind of work our way through, and to work our way through the 11 verses, you have a bad report, a bad parent, and a bad feeling in the passage. So let's look at the bad report. There's nothing in the story that indicates, in my thinking, in my reading, there's nothing there that paints Joseph in a bad light. He is not a bad kid. He's a good kid. He's a good young man. And and this report that he brings, this evil report, really, that he brings of his brothers, I suspect, I surmise, that Daddy had asked for him to report. Because if you look down at verse 14, a little bit later, and Marianne's going to preach on this next week, but if you look down at verse 14, what you'll see is that Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers and bring a report back. And so my guess is this was probably the standard way that this family dynamic was working, right? Joseph and Jacob have a very tight relationship, and so it goes both ways. And in this instance, Joseph has a bad report, an evil report. His brothers have done something, and so he brings the report back. Now, knowing what you know, if you've been along with us in the study, not hard to imagine that his brothers have done something that deems a bad report. I mean, these are the guys in chapter 34, that at least a couple of them go and murder the Shechemites, okay? They're capable of some bad stuff. So you don't have to really, you know, dream up the fact that these guys are capable of doing some bad things. But it sets the stage a little bit for some friction between Joseph and his brothers, this bad report does. Joseph and his brothers are not on the same page. Joseph has clearly been set aside, and he has some relationship with the father that indicates that there's a loyalty there that goes beyond the norm. Now, we know that because it's in the text, but it also happens as Joseph is bringing this bad report and reporting on his brothers. Let's talk about the, the bad parent. Obviously, We're looking at Jacob. We're looking at Israel here. Here is Jacob. Here is Israel doing exactly what was done to him. This is the family dynamic being repeated. Because you'll recall that Jacob had the same, Jacob and Esau had the same sort of turmoil in their family dynamic with their father Isaac. And so here it is. Repeating itself again. Are you surprised? You know, I remember when Jody and I were new parents, and our parents were good parents. They they loved us. They grown you know grown. I mean, listen, the fact that I'm still alive um, is testament to the fact that my mother was a very loving, patient mom, and so was my dad, um, because I tried them in a lot of different ways, but. When Jody and I became, when we were 
getting ready to be new parents, I remember the conversations we were having with older parents, you know, people that had been parents and been through this sort of thing. And, and the kind of the common refrain in, refrain in our marriage was, we don't want to do things exactly the way our parents did them. Right? And so we were trying to take off the blinders and see patterns in our families and ways that we could do things differently. In this instance, Jacob is just, he's doing exactly what was done to him. He's repeating the same family dynamic. And so it's no surprise that he's picked a favorite, and his favorite is Joseph, the youngest. As we go back into the story, it starts to make a little bit of sense, right? Because you'll remember the encounter with Esau and all of those things that were happening. What was Jacob doing? Even when he was trying to do the right thing by going to meet Esau, he was doing the wrong thing by dividing his clan up and putting these sons up here and these sons back here. I mean, if you're Joseph and dad puts you at the very rear and you know you're going to meet Esau and his 400 men, you're thinking, wow, dad really likes me. But if you're the sons out in front, you're going, jeez, dad must really not care a whole lot for us. And look at that Joseph back there. And so all through the story, Jacob has been fostering this sort of thing. Jacob has only made the situation worse as we get into chapter 37 by elevating Joseph further with this robe, with this coat. And then we read in the passage It's fairly straightforward. It says now, verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Why? Because he had been born to him in his old age of Rachel, the one, the wife that he really loved. And so he's very connected there. Now, I want you to, as, as we're working our way through, Remember, remember the trajectory that we're on. This is the family that God has chosen to advance His purposes in the world. This is His covenant family. These are the covenant players. At this point, as the We have the 11 sons here. We don't have any sense of who it is that is going to be the seed of promise necessarily. It looks at the beginning of 37 as if who is the seed of promise? It looks like Joseph is, right? I mean, if you're going to smack some money down on somebody in this horse race, at the beginning of 37, you're thinking to yourself, (laughs) I know who the seed of promise is in this part of the story. It's Joseph. And you would lose your shirt because it's not. And we'll talk more about that. But remember, that's the dynamic. God is using this family. And so the story is being recounted of the family for us. There there are a number of things that you can just begin to process. How is it that God uses People this broken for his cause? Why didn't he choose a family that actually was doing it right? I mean, do you scratch your head and wonder? Yeah. 
And the reason is because we're all broken. Any family he would have chosen would have been a mess because none of us get out of the scathe. And so we have a bad parent. I have a bad situation in the family dynamic. But God is going to use this family. And here's the third one, a bad feeling. Joseph's brothers don't like him. Period. End of story. And they don't like him because Jacob loved him. They don't like him because he was the good son, because he was elevated. They don't like him because he had favorite son status. And Joseph even does some things in the story to egg it on. Now, if you wanted to, if you wanted to point out, you know, okay, so perhaps Joseph wasn't acting quite as he should in the story, maybe it comes up in that he had the dream and he went to his brothers and he said, hey, I had this dream. And in the dream, I, we were binding sheaves of grain in the field and they start laughing. <laughs> you were binding sheaves of grain in the field? Really, Joseph? We were binding sheaves of grain in the field, and mine rose up and yours bowed down to me. And they would have all laughed, right? Only they didn't. They looked at him and they said, so what are you saying? Are you saying you're going to reign over us? Are you saying you're going to rule over us? So he knew their agitation. He knew they were upset. And he went back to bed and he had another dream and he came back and said, guess what? I had another dream. So if you wanted to pin something on Joseph, perhaps you could pin on Joseph the fact that he was rubbing their noses in his dreams. When he goes and he tells his father, and this is the sense, this is why I would say that would be perhaps the thing you could pin on Joseph, because when he goes to Jacob and he tells him about the dream, what does his father do? Verse 10. He rebuked him. He was upset with him. He was angry at him. Perhaps because he sees the writing on the wall. I don't know. He senses what is going on in Joseph's heart, but he rebukes him. Verse 11, his brothers are jealous of him because of... But because Jacob was very curious about the dream, he treasures this in his mind. He keeps this in his heart. Why does Jacob do that? Why does Jacob listen to the dream, receive it, rebuke him, and yet it's the same idea as a, as a young Mary treasuring that in her heart? Why does, he treasure, why does he think about it? Why does he meditate upon it? Because he himself had had a dream. Remember Genesis 32? Jacob laying down with the rock, seeing the Lord, the ladder, Jacob's ladder, the Lord's ladder. See, Jacob himself had encountered God in in a dream. And God had shown himself to Jacob in a dream. And so he rebukes young Joseph, but at the same time, he gets it. So what do we do? What do you want to do? Where, Where do we want to put this material? So there are kind of the three points that hold this story together. Now how about... Three takeaways. Here's the first one. Obedience. And and you will see this in this story. We'll see it in all kinds of other stories. Obedience doesn't guarantee success or ease. Obedience doesn't guarantee success 
or ease. Just because you did it the right way doesn't mean that everything will come out in the wash and it will be, you will be successful and you will have a life of ease. Joseph is exhibit A. Listen, he goes off to check on his brothers in verse 14 and he doesn't return to the promised land until he is literally a bag of bones. Joseph leaves to do what his father asked him to do. He was the good son, and he doesn't come back to Canaan until he's dead and been buried. The Israelites carry his bones back to the promised land. Hebrews 11.22 tells us, right, that this is what Joseph was commended for. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction concerning the burial of his bones. That's what Hebrews 11.22 says. So obedience doesn't mean that things are going to be easy. Here's the second thing. Sin makes us blind to our greatest and only hope. Sin makes us blind to our greatest and only hope. Consider the story. Here are Joseph's brothers. They're world-class sinners. They are filled to the brim with jealousy. Right? They are, their hearts are extremely, exceedingly jealous of their young brother, Joseph. Romans 13.13 tells us that we are not to walk in that manner, in the manner of jealousy and strife. Jealousy is called out numerous times in the Bible. And so here in this passage, here are these brothers, and here is Joseph, and they are hearing his story, his dream. And his dream is the same each time. Different context, the same idea. Joseph's at the center. The, his brothers are gathered around. And, and he is the authority over them. And all they can see, all they can think about is, how could you be our authority? When, when you get into the story, what you learn is that God is simply revealing to Joseph that he will one day be the Savior of his family. He will one day be at the center. They will one day have to come to him. Joseph's dream essentially points to his eventual role as the Savior of the family. But his brothers have been so conditioned by Jacob to hear that the only possible interpretation of Joseph's dream is that he thought he was going to be head honcho when God had something far better in store for them. Instead, God had designated Joseph to be their very Savior. But because of their jealousy and their Because of their jealousy, the first inclination of their heart was to kill him. Even though God was revealing to him that he would be their Savior. 
Sound familiar? Joseph isn't necessarily held up to us as a type of Christ, but he looks fairly close to one when you examine these first few verses. So sin makes us blind to the greatest and only hope that we have. Listen, it was, it was the sin of the people that kept them from being able to receive and accept Jesus as the Savior. It was their own sin. Whatever, whatever that was, it didn't allow them to see that He had come, that He came as a Lamb. That He was for them salvation. And so they rejected Him. And they killed Him. And here in the story, God is simply revealing to Joseph that He will one day be in a position of being the Savior of His family. And He's telling him that. But the brothers are blinded by their own jealousy. Here's the third and final thing. And we will see this over and over, and this is a a prime thread that runs all the way through this story, and that is that God's electing work is never based on man's performance. God's electing work is never based on man's performance. In the story of Joseph, we already alluded to it, who is the promised seed? It's Judah. Judah is the promised seed. Judah is the one from whom ultimately the Savior will come. He is the promised seed. Now, the sons are going to lead the tribes and all of that, and they will. Um, their prospect is to advance the kingdom of God. But the one who will be the seed of promise is Judah. And Judah in this Judah in This whole account, as you're going to see as we work our way through it, isn't the best of guys. And yet the Lord is going to use him. You and I expect the good guy to be rewarded. We expect the guy who's played by the rules and done everything according to plan to be the one who is rewarded and used by God. But what we see is that that isn't what happens. And it it rarely actually is. And what that highlights for us is, first, there really are no good guys. There are only sinners in disguise, to one degree or another. And God is using us, as He did them, to carry out His plan. Remember the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, verse 11, where he says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, Not by works, but by Him who calls. Listen, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter where you've been in life, no matter what ups and downs you have or in the midst of, God uses sinners to advance the gospel. Don't ever think to yourself, He can't use me. Because He uses me's all the time. He is constantly using these. Perhaps you want to reach out to a neighbor. You want to encourage someone. You think, I can't. I look, look at my, I'm a mess. Yeah, guess what? He uses messes to advance his kingdom's purpose. Exactly the way he uses this mess of a family. Beginning now 
in Genesis 37. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you as we come to it that you've given us this picture, this insight into a family that will lead your people. And Father, what a mess. It's difficult for us to understand how it is that you would choose to use this mess, and yet you do. And so we pray, Father, even as we want to walk in forgiveness and newness of life, Father, we pray that you would bless us and use us for the extension of your kingdom in this land. In Christ's name.